The world's busy enough, and it's just getting busier because we all have people we want to take care of, like aging parents and other friends and relatives. Let Instacart save you time while making it easier to stock up on everything you need from groceries and alcohol to home essentials. You can browse thousands of products from your favorite stores, plus you'll get access to exclusive Instacart-only coupons on hundreds of items. So go shopping for yourself, your mom, your uncle, your kids who are away at school. But before you do, go to youdontsay.net and click on the Instacart ad on the homepage and you'll get free delivery on your first order. So you got that new business launched. Now what? I bet you didn't launch it to become a branding and marketing maven. Left Brain Right Brain Marketing works with smaller businesses to develop killer brands and help you engage your audience in a more meaningful and lasting way, creating a cohort of raving fans and loyal customers. So if you're ready to get out of the branding business and focus on what you do best, give us a call at 503-961-3647. Again, that's 503-961-3647 or check us out online at lbrbm.com. I'm Drew Zagorski. You're listening to You Don't Say. Thanks for that. And don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and follow wherever you listen to podcasts or at youdontsay.net and share with your family, friends, and everyone else you know. So here's the story. I grew up in Bridgeport on the south side of Chicago. My part of the neighborhood was thick with Polish families. A few blocks to the east were where the Italians live. And then south of there, spilling into the neighborhood of Canaryville, was the Irish enclave. On a warm Friday night in spring 1976, my oldest sister, 18 at the time, went off to a party a couple blocks away from McGuane Park, which sat between the Polish and Italian parts of the neighborhood. Nothing unusual there. At the party, there was a group of Canaryville kids as well as a group of Bridgeport kids. You know how these things go with packs of teenage boys from different neighborhoods. My sister watched as one thing led to another and words were exchanged. The boys then spilled out of the house into the street, but no punches were thrown, so nothing really unusual there either. The Bridgeport kids headed out in two cars, and the Canaryville kids packed into one and headed off. A few blocks away from that point, the cars converged and the kids piled out. A Canaryville kid beat the hell out of a Bridgeport kid. Then everyone scattered and ran to their home parks. The Bridgeport kids fell back to McGuane Park, which was their ground. The Canaryville kids headed off to their stomping grounds down in Boyce Park. My sister and her friends were with the Canaryville group. About 30 to 45 minutes later, a green car rolled up to Boyce Park. Some of the kids in the park broke in a run toward the car, ready to go. One of the guys out front was a kid named John Hughes. John was a standout athlete and student at De La Salle High School. He was one of 11 kids in his family and was in his junior year and on track to be class president for senior year. He was a really good kid and had a bright future. My sister watched as the group of kids got closer to the green car. She heard a shot ring out. John fell to the ground with a bullet in him. He was pronounced dead at 1.20 a.m. on Saturday, May 15, 1976. There was also a girl my sister knew at the time and in the park named Mary Mestrovic who saw the passenger of the car. She testified to the police about it. It appeared things were on track to bring in suspects in the shooting. Then... Things went off the tracks. Calls were made. Suddenly, things were being pushed aside as if there was nothing to see here. A police commander insisted on taking over the investigation, which was almost unheard of. It appeared a cover-up was in the works. Mary's been questioned over the years, and her story has never changed. 
Some of the kids in the Bridgeport group and alleged to be in the car were sons of figures in the outfit, the Chicago mob, one of whom later shot his girlfriend, called the police to report a break-in, then changed his story to an accidental shooting. His father, who was in the outfit, showed up at the house ahead of police. No weapon, a revolver, was ever found. There's speculation that it could have been the same weapon that killed John Hughes. The kid walked. Forty-plus years later, John's mother, who's still living, and his family still don't have an answer or justice for this crime. Chicago police detective Jim Sherlock picked up the cold case in 2018. When he began to unpeel the case, he saw patterns of corruption by police officials, judges, and politicians one of which was the towering Chicago political giant Richard J. Daley, who was mayor at the time of the murder, and his successor, Mayor Michael Bolandic. I'm talking with Detective Sherlock today to hear more about this case. He's featured in Jeff Cohen's book, Murder in Canaryville, the true story behind a cold case and a Chicago cover-up, which came out earlier this year. I'll put a link to that book in the episode notes. So joining me today is Detective Jim Sherlock. Thanks for coming on the show today. Is it okay if I call you Jim? Sure is. Thanks for having me, Drew. Sure. Um, uh, Jim, what's your current status with the Chicago Police Department? You retired, right? Yeah, I retired. I retired back in uh, 2019. And uh, shortly after retirement, I went to work for the Cook County State's Attorney's Office uh, as an investigator. Okay, so... Um, a quick Reader's Digest version of career highlights, and then let's get into how you came to pick up the John Hughes case. Sure. Sure. I joined the Chicago Police Department in 1989. I went through I went through patrol where I started out in Inglewood, a pretty rough, rough part of the city. Then I went from there. I went to gang crimes, worked as a gang crimes officer for a few years. I've worked a couple of years as an undercover officer downtown Chicago, working robberies on the uh, L train. Then I was promoted to detective in 97. Uh, in 2003, I went to the U.S. Marshals Fugitive Apprehension Team. Uh, it was a task force run by the U.S. Marshals, and we worked the whole Midwest area. It was a pretty intense um, unit I worked in for a while. And then while I was there, Drew, uh, while I was with the Marshals, I worked a case with the FBI where we, um, we did a RICO case that lasted close to 18 months okay. with a very successful um, conclusion, we ended up arresting 11 of the players and all 11 and ended up uh, pleading out. So while I was with them and the, and the investigation ended, uh, I was asked to join the, the FBI task force permanently. That's how I got to the FBI task force. Okay. Now in <clears throat> the, um, opening comments, uh, I talked a little bit about some of the events that led up to the John Hughes shooting. And so can you take us from the moment that that shot was fired to how the events of that night unfolded? Well, <clears throat> as soon as the shot was fired, which was about about 1.15 a.m. on May 15th, as soon as the shots were fired, um, obviously there was chaos at Boyce Park, which is located on the south southwest side of Chicago. Um, and I think what happened then is immediately – Immediately, the wheels started turning with with how are we going to cover this up? Because because a few kids in the car were very heavily, you know, political. Polit political. Let's put it that way. They they knew a lot of people in the right places. So I think it, it drew. I, in my opinion, as soon as that shot was fired, let's say one fifteen, I think by one thirty, this whole um, this whole event was in progress on how to how to cover this up. Gotcha. So now and and we're talking about an event where it wasn't just like 
three or four kids hanging out in the park, right? There was 50 or 60 kids there when it all went down. It was late at night, probably, you know, midnight later than that. Um, so just out of the gate, identifying anyone in the car was going to be a challenge because nobody got out of it. Obviously my sister actually was there. Um, and she was telling me about it. Uh, when I read the book that, that, the you know, the cops came and then they took everybody's names, but people weren't questioned until the following days. The one thing she was able to remember was that the car was green and not a whole lot more. So she didn't really get a clear look at it. But there was another witness there who did, and her name was Mary Mestrovic, and she's had the strongest testimony of this shooting and was the only one really who could confirm uh, anybody in the car, the passenger of the car, Nick Costello. She actually identified him in a lineup. And from that time to today, 40 years later, she really hasn't deviated from any of the details she shared. So Talk to me about how the police brought her in, collected her testimony, and how they handled that and treated her. Okay. So Mary, as you said, was the only witness, but Drew, she was the only witness, witness <clears throat> excuse me, on paper. There was another witness that, that witnessed the event as well and was questioned by the police the same night Mary was, but his testimony was, was shredded, uh, to, say, to say the least. Uh, it wasn't until years later when I re-interviewed him that I was able to, to determine that he was actually a witness standing very close to uh, Mary Mastrovic. But getting getting back to Mary, um, Mary, as you said, Mary was a, was an awesome witness. You, actually, as an investigator, you couldn't get a better witness than Mary Mastrovic. Um, I talked to her, obviously, 40 years after the event. But like you mentioned earlier, she has not wavered one bit. Um, she was standing right there. The car rolled up going less than five miles per hour. Mary literally grew up with Nick Costello, the passenger. Mm-hmm. So when, when the when the vehicle passed Mary, Drew, she not only identified him, she identified him by his his nickname, his childhood nickname, as which was Horse. She she said, Hi, Horse. And then when when he you know returned the gaze to her. She could tell something was up. He had he had a like a far thousand yard stare. You know, I don't. I'm, I'm not saying he knew a shot was going to emanate from the vehicle. Right. But she knew something was up. Right. They, they and he there. registered. He registered her. So it was exactly. clearly eye contact. Exactly. Eye contact was made. And then the other witness, Larry Raditz, he he was standing behind Mary, and he knew Nick Costello through playing, you know, softball. Uh, you know, at Bridge in Bridgeport and um in Canaryville. So he knew him pretty well as, you know, as, as well as Mary did. Okay. So, um, the, with Mary, they brought her in, um, and as it details in the book that the police were actually, you know, ridiculing her saying she was drunk. She was a slut, all this sort of stuff. This is from Mary, but is there have has there ever been any kind of corroboration about how she was treated and her testimony was treated within the police department? No. So what happened was it was a high ranking member of the police department actually drew the, the, the street guys, the tactical officers and the patrol officers, they handled her, you know, professionally. They, they, they located her. I actually got her the next day at Maria high school on the Southwest side. They picked her off from school and they brought her to the station up until then everything was fine. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, I knew one of the officers that that picked her up back in 76. He's a gentleman. And I think him and his partner, they, they probably thought, hey, we, you know, we got the main witness of this case. The, the problem started as soon as they delivered her to the, the police um, department, the police building there they at the uh, area three detective division. As soon as she walked into that building, um, the two officers that brought her in there, they, they knew something was was foul. Because as soon as they brought her in, a, a high-ranking high member of the police department, actually a commander, Drew, of the 19th of the 9th district, you know, started on her right away that that she was drinking and, and she wasn't a good witness. And then on top of that, a high-ranking member from the state's attorney's office showed up, or I'm sorry, he was already there. And then as soon as she walked into the building, he started criticizing her as well, as saying she was in the park drinking. You, you don't know what you saw. Right. Now, so the commander in question here is John Habercorn. I think I'm pronouncing his name Habercorn. correctly. Habercorn. Um, and so they, when she got brought in for questioning, he kind of starts to inject himself into the process. And this is after, by the way, both Costello's and Rocky Lamonti's name had surfaced in test in the in the witness. Uh, in the testimony collected. Right. Um, and just coincidentally, now Habercorn was in the ninth district, right? Correct. And that just coincidentally was literally doors away for, from then mayor Daly, Richard J. Daly, the older mayor, yes. uh, from his home. And there was people that talked about all of a sudden somebody went out the door and headed in the direction of the mayor's home. And then they came back and that's when this all kind of started to, to roll out like this, right? Exactly. The detective's name was Terry Strong. Uh, Terry had only a few years as a detective. His partner was Jack Boyle, uh, a veteran. Um, he knew what was going on. They were the first two, Drew, to take a, an official handwritten statement from Mary Masterfield. So Terry, after I interviewed him, Terry, Terry told me everything was going great. He thought Mary was a fantastic witness. He, he thought he had a great case going. As soon as he walked, as soon as they finished the meeting with Mary, the handwritten statement, they walked out of an, out of the office, one of the offices in, in the ninth district. There was a big man standing there in the hallway waiting for them. And that man's name was Jack Townsend. Jack Townsend was the old mayor, Mayor Richard J. Daly's right-hand man. Um, he was second in charge of the police department. So it was okay. Kind of unusual for Detective Strong to see him standing there. And according according to Detective Strong, Townsend ripped the statement out of Strong's hands, didn't ask him for it, just ripped it out of his hand, read a few, a few, you know, a few paragraphs probably, and then told the detectives, stay here. And then the detectives watched him walk out the, you know, the door, the, the front door, and immediately he turned left. So Strong and Boyle followed him out the door. Boyle took a step out and noticed where exactly where Townsend was walking. And he walked directly to the, the mayor's house. Okay. Now, I mean, we, we don't know, but based on, on conclusions that we can draw from uh, uh, witnesses and how this all kind of started to um, get away from the original investigators, right? That, Oh, um, the mayor himself, his successor, Michael Belandic, also an alderman, all had their hands in the meddling of this and shutting down of this investigation. So what 
details or circumstantial evidence has been uncovered about that. Well, what happened later is um, in the trial, um, I'll actually t- take a step back. One of the suspects in the vehicle was a, was a young man named Lamantia, Rocky Lamantia. And uh, Lamantia did not participate in the investigation at all. The, the police were never able to interview him. Uh, Lamantia's attorney basically sent the detectives a letter saying, you know, he, uh, he's my client. Don't, you, don't have any, you don't have a right to talk to him. And by the way, he went to one of my own uh, polygraph examiners and he passed. He passed it. So we're not coming into the station. Well, a couple of years later, he ended up being, he ended up killing his girlfriend, um, Martha DeCarroll. That was 1979. Um, right. Rumor, rumor had it. I, I can't prove this, but rumor had it that Martha was going to go to the police and tell the police that Rocky had something to do with the murder of John Hughes. So um, Rocky, at the time, I think he was only 19 or 20 years old shot and killed Martha. Well, within a couple of years, it went to trial and um, Lamontia and his attorney decided to do a bench trial. And uh, they ple- they didn't give a defense. Their statement basically was it was um, it was an a- accidental. So uh, the judge rendered his verdict and gave him not guilty. Right. Well, shortly after that, the judge, Judge Mahoney, was arrested during the uh, federal investigations of the, what was called Greylord. And during that investigation, it was it became known that the Lamontia family paid off the judge to get uh, Rocky off this case. So that right there tells you the political influence. This was ob- obviously the outfit organized crimes influence, but that's just one person in the car of possible five people. And it seems like everybody drew in this vehicle had some type of political connection, a, a high political connection or an outfit connection. Gotcha. And um, yeah, I wanted to get into the uh, girlfriend thing in a bit, but um, so, and it was like, not just the police department and the politicians, but this also entangled a bunch of judges or maybe not a bunch of judges, but a couple of different judges, because didn't Mary actually sit before a grand jury and give some testimony that was kind of pushed aside? Um, Yes thrown yeah, mary, talk to me about that well mary and, and it's it's a great question because when i first started the investigation i had all the information i had which was which was very little very very few reports and i thought i had the chicago police department detective file and the state's attorney's felony review file it turned out that i i was within a month of this investigation talking to mary probably four or five times before i learned she actually went in front of the, t- the grand jury so I was I when she said that to me, I was like, Drew, I'm like, whoa, 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 you, you went to the grand jury? And she's like, yeah. And, I, and for a second, I didn't believe her. I'm, I'm like, well, you know, describe to me what the grand jury looks like. And she described it to a T. And I'm like, holy cow. Yeah. And she was in front of a grand jury. And I, I went to 26th Street. That's where our criminal court building is. I went to 26th Street and they told me there's no file there. There's absolutely no file on that case in 1976, which another hand of someone reached that far to the criminal courts building, which is unheard of. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, reports missing from the CPD, you know, back then, but there's not a lot of things missing from 26th Street. They're they're pretty good down there about keeping the reports, but the whole file was, was torn up, shredded. So that's when I started asking other people like Larry Raddatz and John Russell. They also went to the grand jury 
Larry Raddatz went to the grand jury, just like Mary, and testified that Nick Costello was in the front seat. But no one even knows that because all those reports were destroyed by the uh, strong arm of Chicago politics. Right. Um, now, this is a backup uh, a little bit and go get back to this commander, John Habercorn. Yep. The unless you really understand how things work within a police department, which most people don't really know the nuts and bolts of it, how unusual was it for him to suddenly go to the uh, lead investigators at the time and say, nope, I'm taking this over. You guys just back off. Absolutely crazy. Ludicrous. Um, that just would not happen. As a matter of fact, a, a good commander or even a bad commander they would come into a room right away and tell their detectives, you know, not their detectives. He's, he was a commander of patrol, okay? okay? But he actually overstood his bound boundaries and told detectives that he was going to handle the interview, which is unheard of. Because the detectives, they have their own commander. So the, um, the patrol commander of the 9th District, Habercorn, interjected himself into the investigation by telling two season, well, one seasoned investigator that he's going to handle the, the interview which it just wouldn't happen. The, the, the commander has no idea what's been going on. The, guy, the, the investigators, the detectives are actually out there talking to people, gathering information. So they have the tools that you need to interview somebody. This right. commander, you know, he shows up at the station, you know, making his phone calls here or there. All of a sudden he tells, you know, Boyle and Strong, I'll handle this investigation. So that was, it was a shock to Terry Strong because he was a new detective. But it wasn't a shock to Jack Boyle. Uh, Terry Strong said Jack Boyle knew that the fix was in right from the beginning because he's been around. He was around so long. Right. Now, what about you mentioned that the detectives have a different commander. So when this happened, did Strong and Boyle say anything or go to their commander and ask about it? Or were they just, you know, we need to just step back? No, no. Great question. Actually, what they did is. Uh, Terry Strong was reacting a little bit differently, I guess. I, I'm, I'm assuming because Boyle knew what was going on. So Terry Strong actually reached out to um, Joe Curtin was his name. Uh, he was the he was the Area 3 Detective Division um, commander. I, th I think that was his title, either lieutenant or commander. He was their boss. So um, what, I'm what I gathered was, was Curtin contacted Habercorn about, hey, you know, I'll handle the detective side. But at some point, Curtin was probably told by someone, stand aside, Habercorn's going to do this. Right. Probably, probably from the state's attorney, right? It well, would I would say the state's attorney or, or some politician somewhere. Got it. You know, made, made a real quick phone call to say, let, let Habercorn take care of this. Right. Now, the as all this is going down, there's a lot of um, incidental connections. I mean, Bridgeport and Canaryville are pretty tight neighborhoods. Having grown up there, I know that. People know each other and, and that sort of thing. But as this whole thing's going down, it turns out that Mary's mother was a waitress at a restaurant called the Coral Key in Bridgeport. And a meeting happened there between the police and some of the members of the Chicago outfit. Is that correct? And what? tell me about that and how that all unfolded. Well, the meeting took place at the Coral Key, like you said, restaurant in Bridgeport in the basement. And like, like you um, alluded to, Mary Mestrovic's mother just happened to be working that night. So the owner of the place had Mary, um, you know, wait that table. And she noticed, you know, there's first a few Chicago police bosses were there. 
And then she noticed a bunch of youths from Bridgeport who, who were involved in the altercation that night. Well, the, the, the previous altercations, fights happened before John Hughes was shot. Mm-hmm. So she noticed that. And then she noticed some people she didn't recognize. And as far as um, people from the outfit, I don't, I don't recollect anybody from the outfit being there. But there were a few people that, that Mary's mother couldn't identify. So that could have been the people from the outfit. But they were high-ranking police officials. Um, there was an unknown man there that later was determined to be Nick Costello's father. Okay. Um, the, the, the officer that actually picked Mary Mastrovic up from high school to bring her in the first day, that officer was at that meeting. And when he was sitting there, uh, he was also, I'm sorry, I'll back up, Drew. After he picked up Mary Mastrovic and interviewed her, John Fermanick and his partner went and arrested Nick Costello. So when they arrested Nick Costello, you know, when they went, when they went to knock on the door, you know, the father of Nick answered it. You know, he cooperated. Him and, him and Nick, you know, went down to the police station. They were questioned and released. Well, a few days later, when John Fermanick, he was invited to this meeting at, at the Coral Key restaurant, that Nick Costello's father was sitting at the table with all these high-ranking police officials. And do we know if uh, the father was connected to the outfit? Uh, that's a great that's a great question because my investigation found out that the father is related politically related to um, Mayor Blandick. Um, okay. There's a, there's a family relationship there, but later on, I mean, I'm talking just recently. There's been some evidence that he is related to um, a member of the outfit. Got it. Okay. Now, um, another name that continued to pop up throughout the story, the investigation is related to the car. And that is Paul Ferraro. There were some really sketchy stories about the car um, when it was used. And then that night in the middle of the night, suddenly Paul is driving out of town on a family vacation, which is kind of a weird time to leave unless you're driving for a, you know, a 20 hour ride. But what happened there? Well, that is, that is, that was a crazy situation. So as far as the car goes, Drew, uh, you and I are about the same age. You know, when we were kids, when we were, you know, 15, 16, 17, if someone had a car in my neighborhood, everyone knew who drove that car. Yeah. You know, I think today, I think there's a, a lot more kids are, you know, have access to vehicles, but Back in 1976, you know, in my group of friends, maybe two of us had a car. All about all of our buddies around the neighborhood knew, knew whose car that was. So fast forward to you know that night when that, when that car pulled up, the people in the park who knew Paul, they knew it was his vehicle. It was, there was never a question on whose car is that. According to the police reports, there's a question. They made it they made it very ambiguous in the police department in the police reports about the car. And if, if you were an outsider reading the reports, you would think there was a question on, you know, was it a blue Nova? Was it a green Chevy uh, Impala? Who knows? But in all actuality, when that car pulled up that night, uh, they, everyone in that park who knew Paul, they knew it was his car. Okay. Now, um, and has, Paul or anybody connected to him ever come forward in the 40 years to talk about the car and to say maybe somebody borrowed it or? Well, here's what happened, Drew. Um, So the car was a hot topic for probably two days, probably until May 17th, May 18th. It was a hot topic. Green Chevy Impala, probably four doors. 
That describes Paul's car to a T. Mm-hmm. On the third day, that car was eliminated, and a second car was put in, a two-door blue Chevy Nova. And from that moment, that's where the investigation went. They're looking for a two-door blue Nova, who I have no idea how that information came came to it, came to be. I mean, it was it's, you know, you're reading reports, you know, from 1976. You know, they're looking for a green Chevy Impala four-door, which was a big car back then for people who don't know. It was a big right, boat. Right. So all of a sudden, they're looking for a two-door Chevy Nova. And how that worked was the night in question when Johnny Hughes was shot and killed, um, as you as you mentioned earlier, Paul and his then-girlfriend uh, decided to drive to Warsaw, Indiana. At um, The shooting happened at 115, 120. He testified that he left at two o'clock in the morning. Him and his girlfriend drove to mm-hmm. Warsaw, Indiana. So he was interviewed about that. And then I found out during my interview, you know, 40 plus years later, that an evidence technician from Chicago actually left Chicago the night that John was shot. That would have been May 15th. So probably, mm-hmm. you know, five, six o'clock in the morning, left Chicago, drove to Warsaw, Indiana by himself which is just as crazy as Habercorn interviewing a, sus- a, a witness. Just as crazy. Just to go alone. No, not even alone, Drew. He wouldn't even go. There's no way that an evidence technician, shortly after a shooting occurred, that he would travel two and a half hours away to a different state to, to, to investigate a vehicle that that's just been mentioned used. There, there, would, there would have to be so much more investigation to go on before a detective would go with him. If they would go with him, you know, my uncle, Bill Sherlock actually was an evidence tech drew at the same time this happened. Okay. And when I told him at the, you know, at the early days of me investigating this, I found, I found this out. And I told my uncle Bill that an ET drove to Warsaw, Indiana to, to, to look at a vehicle that may have been using a shooting. He laughed. He goes, that didn't happen. It wouldn't happen. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's unheard of, but the reason why that officer went out there, is he went out there to eliminate that vehicle from the investigation. So what he did is he put in his report, he put, after examining said vehicle, it's my, it's under, it's up to my determination that this vehicle was not used in the, in the drive-by shooting of John Hughes. I mean, obviously that's not verbatim, but that's what he said. So as soon as he entered that report, now all of a sudden that green Chevy is not going to be looked at anymore. It's, it's been eliminated. Which right. which was a, a farce. Right. There's two things I love about mornings. Getting up and smelling fresh brewed coffee and then the wagon tail of my best pal who's always there to greet me. He was a rescue dog and I can't imagine my world without him. So I'm all about helping dog rescues wherever and whenever I can. That's one of the reasons why I drink Hugo Coffee. Proceeds from all sales go to supporting dog rescue missions. The other reason is that they deliver an awesome cup of coffee. My favorites are the Rollover Breakfast Blend, New Trick Light, and Bonafido Dark Roast. And Hugo Coffee Beans are sourced from fair trade farms and roasted using sustainable techniques. So, turn your daily ritual into an act of kindness. You'll be saving pups with every cup. So drink coffee, save dogs. Go to youdontsay.net and click on the Hugo Coffee logo on the homepage. Then enter Save Dogs at checkout and save 10% on your entire order. Again, that's Save Dogs at checkout to save 10%. You know, 
Aren't there enough things that cost an arm and a leg when you're running a business? There's really no reason you should be spending five grand or more for a website unless it's doing some pretty whiz-bang stuff. With Squarespace, you don't have to, even with some whiz-bang. With plans starting as low as 12 bucks a month for a personal website, Squarespace has a library of professionally designed templates to start from with easy-to-use tools that let you customize your site to fit your brand. So get that site going today. Just go to youdon'tsay.net, look for the Squarespace logo on the homepage, click on it, and when you check out, put in the code PARTNER10, again, that's PARTNER10, you'll save 10% off your first subscription on a website or a domain. And if you need help with your site, drop Left Brain Right Brain Marketing a call at lbrbm.com. Squarespace, it's the shortest, most cost-effective distance between here and success. So... the I want to get on to Rocky Lamontia now. He's he's deceased, um, died I guess three or four years ago, cancer or whatever. But um, his father was a guy that we we know was connected to the outfit. So when things started to to kind of roll out and Lamontia's name gets involved, and then suddenly the you know everything's getting shut down and closed off. Um, the Hughes family decided to hire a private investigator. Um, so he begins his process and really quickly he tells the family, I, 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 I can't do this. Talk to me about what happened there. Well, another great question. Very interesting what happened there. So when I started my investigation, Drew, yes, the Hughes family told me that, that they hired a PI because they got the feeling that the Chicago Police Department was corrupted. Um, and actually the Hughes family told me several times that they were very happy with the ninth district police officers. They did a great job, but uh, like I said earlier, it was, it was the command that was, you know, throwing a wrench in the investigation. But what happened with that was, um, yeah. So when the invest, when they hired this investigator, he came to the house, uh, they liked him. He looked like he was very professional. He first questioned the Hughes family, you know, what information do you got for me? So he was basically asking the, the Hughes family, what do you got? What do you got? So that after they, the Hughes family told him what, what they knew, the investigator left. And well, he shortly, a few days later, he came back, he came back to the Hughes family and he said, I strongly advise you to drop this case. He said it would, it would be in your family's best interest to drop the case. So that's all they really knew about it. During my investigation, and I've and I want to be clear, I was never able to verify this, but the person that called and told me this is, is a very respectable person in the South side. And I have no okay. reason, reason to doubt this, to, to deny this. He said a character by the name of Anthony Pelicano, who, if anyone out there has ever seen the TV series, Ray Donovan, that's who Ray Donovan is based on. Anthony Pelicano, Anthony Pelicano, um, what was in the outfit in his early days and what he became uh, known for was being a fixer. So people would hire him later in Hollywood. Uh, Hollywood stars would hire him and he would take care of their problems, make them go away. So this was basically Anthony Pelicano's start with the outfit. Um, I'm sure the outfit got him there, find out what they know and then go back and basically tell them don't proceed with this investigation. So like I said, I wasn't able to verify that it was Anthony Pelicano, but I have no reason to doubt the witness that claims it was he. Okay. So um, then the Hughes family, I guess, just has to throw up their hands and be like, what the fuck? 
what do we do here? Um, because they're just being stonewalled and, you know, and shut actually, down. They were, being, they were being threatened by people in the neighborhood. Uh, Mary Mastervik was being threatened by some kids in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But my heart really went out to the U.S. family. I, I can't imagine. First of all, Drew, I couldn't imagine losing a child to a sickness. Right, right. You know, let alone your healthy child is in a park and for no reason he gets shot and killed. And then, ha- you know, have that drama in your life and then to find out that that the investigation is, is corrupted. I mean, that, and, and to this day, 40 years later, you know, the Hughes family and Mary Mestrovic, they've been very, very cordial with me, very nice. But they, they always say to me, they go, listen, we appreciate what you're doing, detective, but we understand. And it's almost like, well, what do you mean you understand? Right. And to them, they're like, we understand. The forces, are, the forces in charge right now are not going to allow this case, you know, to be settled. Right. So back during this period of time in the late seventies, talk me through the end game of how the whole thing was just shut down altogether. Yeah. Well, I think it just, what happened drew is it ran its course and it's hard for me to give you a, um, a good answer for that because the, the, the file, the way it was torn apart by, by the people back in 76, the people in charge, because it's hard for me to tell. Like I found a couple pieces of paper, Drew, in the file that had they, they were copies, and you could only see the date, like 20 July 1976. But there's mm-hmm. no report with it, so I I have no idea. Like the last report I have is at well, not counting the new investigations that started. There was one that started in um in in 2005, and there was also one that started in 95. So without those investigations. The last report I have, John being shot in May of 76, the last report I have is in November of 76. Now, that's unheard of. I mean, that's I mean, these investigations don't stop like that. So obviously, right. there's a lot that happened that I don't know about. So I, I really don't know how. But the way it fizzled out was it was just the Chicago being Chicago. Something else happened, I'm sure, in that area in the 9th District. People start going, doing their own thing. And all of a sudden, the Hughes family and Mestrovic and, you know, Raditz and Russell and the other people are all left by themselves because the police right. now are gone. So that's kind of how it fizzled out. Right. And so right now, Mary, uh, uh, Mestrovic, John, Russell and Larry Raditz, if my memory serves from the book, are all still with us. Yes. Um, and Larry and John were pretty close friends of uh, John Hughes, correct? Yeah, to this day, to this day, Drew, they still meet once a month. Those the guys from Canaryville, and they still talk about what happened back in '76. And right. and when you talk to Larry, you know Larry's a pretty you know rough guy, rough around the edges, you know Canaryville type guy, and, and that's a good thing. Uh, and he still gets pretty emotional talking about um, John because and, it, and it, like I said before, it's not just John's death; it's what happened afterwards. And you know, I, I can see the hurt in in, in Larry's in face when I, when I talk to him, because he, he knows I'm trying to do the right thing, but he also knows that the people are, are way more powerful than I am that are keeping this thing, you know, keeping a, uh, a hood on this thing, cover on it. Right. And so in terms of, you know, you talk about, um, uh, victims, it wasn't just John Hughes and his family. It's everybody who knew John and was friends with him, who loved him. They carry this open wound to this day. And um, Mary as well, it talks about some of the 
you know, um, emotional baggage that she carries with it, um, especially because she came forward and, you know, does what everybody is supposed to do. And she got pushed aside, right? Exactly. I mean, from a police officer standpoint, I mean, every copper that listening to you right now, they know she was that gold piece. She was that nugget. I mean, when you, when you go to a murder scene and you find somebody who's as, as intelligent as Mary Mastrofek and who actually was very calm that night from what I heard, she, obviously it was a shock to her system what happened, but she stayed calm. She gave the police a fantastic um, account of what happened. Mm-hmm. And my friend, John Fermanick, he was the one interviewing her. That's why they went to lock up Nick Costello right away, because they had the start of the end. So in a normal investigation, they would have brought Nick Costello in. They would have questioned him. And I have no doubt that by the next day of this investigation should have been over, that everyone in that car should have been should have been accounted for. And what's sad about that to this day, Drew, is I still don't know how many people were in that car. I know there's more than I know there's more than two. And it, so it could be from two all the way to five. But right. I, I know you're from that neighborhood over there. And and it, it, it's it, it's a matter of fact that when that car pulled up, Drew, um, the lighting in that side of the park was real bad. Uh, it just I don't think obviously I don't think these kids, these high school kids had that or young kids had that planned. But where they stopped their car, there was there was a, um, a street light not far from it. So they were able to see Nick, but they could not tell who else was in the car. Right. And, and, if, and if Larry Raddis and John Russell and, and others, if they would have saw him, I, they would have told us who, who was in there. Got it. So let's talk about the the years after the event. Um, a few years after the shooting, Rocky Lamontia, um, this good kid, shot and killed his girlfriend, Martha DeCaro. She supposedly went to break up with him. Um, and Rocky walks from that one as well. Uh, there was no, we, he, he kind of shifted his story from the initial call he made to police, no weapon. His dad shows up before. Why don't you fill me in on that? Well, what happened that night is um, I haven't been able to verify the fact that Martha was going to break up with Rocky. Or, or actually, I verified that, that she was going to break up with, Rock, with Rocky. But her motive for breaking up with Rocky I, I was told, not able to verify it, was because Martha was going to tell the police that John was involved in the shooting of, of I'm, I'm sorry, that Rocky was involved in the shooting death of John Hughes. So Rocky, that day, um, 1979, ended up having an argument with his girlfriend and, and shot her in the face, point blank, and killed her. Uh, when he first called the police, he told the police that he was in the bathroom and um, two guys broke into the house, ransacked the house, and shot and killed his girlfriend. Well, the, the the first responding police officers that got there, they knew that was BS right away. So they put him in handcuffs and they put Rocky in the in a, in a squad car in front of the house. Unfortunately, sometime before that had happened, Rocky's father, Shorty Lamontia, who's a member of the outfit, Shorty was able to recover the, the, the weapon from the scene and leave. So the weapon was never recovered. Um, what stands out about that is, was it the same weapon that was used to kill John Hughes? Uh, we don't know. We don't know because of reports. I did find a report saying that the bullet used to kill John Hughes is a 32 caliber. Um, but it, I don't even know if that's right to tell you. So so many other things were fixed and and changed that I, I can't even rely on that. But we'll never know because the gun was missing. Right. 
And again, uh, it wasn't just his dad getting in, involved in it, but judges were involved, right? What day, details do you have about how this uh, killing of Martha DeCaro ha- happened? Yeah, so, they, so he's arrested, charged with murder. He uh, bonds out of jail right away. Um, he goes to trial within two years. And at trial, they don't put up any defense. Their re- the, the reasoning for the shooting, their motive was accidental. This is the bench trial you mentioned earlier. Bench trial, right? Which in a murder case, you're not going to take a bench trial. You're going to take your you're going to take your chances with twelve people instead of one. So the prosecution presents the case. From what I understand and from what I've read, it was a no brainer. It was not a contact wound. Um, It wasn't that she had the gun up to her face and the gun went off by accident. Um, I heard. I understand the trial went well. The jury rendered rendered his verdict. I'm sorry. The judge gave his verdict of not guilty. So that was a big shock to the DeCaro family, a mm-hmm. big shock. Mm-hmm. And what became of Rocky Lamontia after this? Well, after, after he beat this murder, he, um, nothing except getting arrested. Um, he was kind of just one of those guys who hung out the South side. And, and um, what, what I've heard from people, I, I didn't verify this, that he was doing um, a lot of illegal activity um, with, with, with the outfit. But he never really amounted to anything. He never became a made member of the outfit mm-hmm. or anything like that. He just was that guy hanging around Bridgeport um, and then until he until he died a few years ago. Okay. And how about Nick Costello? What do we know about what happened to him after these well, events? Nick, as you know, people from Bridgeport usually don't leave Bridgeport. That's it's kind of one of those neighborhoods where they they stay there at least for right. a few years after you graduate high school. It's very close to community. Right. I think it's a great neighborhood. Along with along with Canaryville, but Nick left. Nick Nick left. Um, he got married shortly out of high school. Got married, divorced quickly. But he left Bridgeport at, in in the, in the mid eighties, and he lives about an hour and a half outside Chicago. Got it. So, is the investigation ongoing? Um, and if so, where does it stand today? There's been obviously a book project takes time to put together. So there's been a stretch of time from the period that that was happening to now yeah. so what's going on with that case now is when i left cpd which i also left the fbi then because i left the fbi task force the fbi task force now it's um they're looking into it um I, what i'm doing is as as we speak now drew i'm leaving i left all my notes all my reports with with um with a with two agents in the fbi and they're gonna they're gonna pick it up um i'm gonna assist as an advisor because okay. uh, you know, being out of CPD on that, I, I really want to let someone else now, um, you know, take over this investigation, but I am going to stay with it as an advisor. Um, you know, murder, unsolved murders never are, are closed, but, you know, ongoing and active is, is a big, big word because ongoing, that can mean anything. That can mean every once in a while somebody picks the file up, right. shuffles papers around and puts it down. But I, I'm hoping that this investigation stays active. Because, you know, the characters involved in this now are all in their early 60s, right. late 50s, early 60s. I'm just hoping for the Hughes family that somebody, you know, has a change of heart. And they come forward and they say, hey, you know, this is what happened. But not it's too long of a story to get into with a trial. This case would never be able to go to trial. Right. Um, this is really going to be my question was, is it even possible to pr- prosecute anybody? Never, never. Is anyone listening to your podcast now that knows anything about law enforcement you know what the defense and say we charged you know nick costello 
you know, say, you know, you charge them, you go to court, there's a motion right away. You know, an average attorney would put me on the stand right away and say, hey, detective, are you are you satisfied that you have all the reports in this case? Obviously, I don't. And as soon as you say that, that you don't have all the reports, you know, the attorney can, you know, fire right back and say, well, isn't it possible that there's a report out there that exonerates my client? And I, I yeah, yeah, there is, because there's so many reports that are missing. So shadow it, of a doubt. It, it, exactly, exactly. So no matter what I'm able to do or, or the FBI, the new guys are able to do in this case, it's not going to be able to go to trial. But what we can get, though, is we can get some satisfaction from the Hughes family if we're able to, to identify the shooter and have that person confess or have someone else in the vehicle that can prove they were in the vehicle and confess to who the shooter was. And maybe what they have in big cities, or which they have in Chicago, is exceptionally clear closed. So that would mean the case is closed, identi- uh, offender, offender identified, but no one's going to be charged. Mm-hmm. And I think the youth family would be happy with that right now. They've got an idea, you know, who was involved, but unfortunately they don't know for sure. And I know what they would, would really love to hear, Drew, is they would love to hear the motive. Was it their intent to drive by to shoot someone or, or did the four people in the car have no thought they were going to go there to yell insults at them? Right. And one person pulled a gun and shot. I mean, the other four people in the car, if there were five, maybe they had no idea that the one person was going to shoot. We don't know that. I, t- to me, in my experience and growing up near the same neighborhood, I don't think that car drove up with the intent to shoot someone. These Bridgeport and Canaryville kids have been fighting for generations. They don't mind fighting. Most of the time, it's, it, it's fist fights. You right. know, they, they both fight each other. They, they leave. Then they go see each other at De La Salle High School. Or they play softball against each other right. at Boys Park. Or at McGuane Park. So I don't think anybody from Bridgeport meant to shoot anyone from Canaryville that night, but something happened. And that's what the Hughes family wants to know. Why was John shot? And I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, before I leave this world, I'll be able to, to tell the Hughes family what happened. And, and also, Drew, the Hughes mother, John Hughes' mother is still alive. Right. She's, um, I believe, 94 In her 90s. years old. Yeah. 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 And I tell you what, it, it, would, it would be great if I was able to tell Ellen, John's sister, Hey, this listen, sit down. This is what happened. And this is why it happened. And this is how it happened. And I, I know that they they would really appreciate that. And also maybe the mother wants to hear that before before she passes. Right. And between the uh book and now, has there been any new information that surfaced that you're able to share? <laughs> you know what, Drew? I've 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 gotten no less than a hundred phone calls um from people from Bridgeport and Canaryville. But unfortunately, everybody wants to talk, but it's all hearsay. I can't use what they're telling me to put it on paper. Um, I've had a call um, from some people who I happen to know just from playing softball from from guys in Bridgeport. And what they told me is great is great stuff, but I just can't use it unless they're unless they're willing to come to a station and put it on paper or go in front of a grand jury. I can't use it. So to answer your question, yeah. There's a lot of very exciting things that mm-hmm. have been happening since the book came out, Drew, but I'm not able to use any of that. So I can't, I don't want to go telling the Hughes family or Mary Mestrovic or Larry sure. that, hey, I got this new information because really I don't have it. Unless I'm able to use it, I don't have it. Right. So that's why that's I'm standing. So right now I'm trying to convince some of these people to tell me who told them this. 
And if and if if they can tell me who told them the information, I need to go interview that person and convince that person. If it's true, I need to take that person to the grand jury. Yeah. Or not me now would be the the um the FBI investigators. Right. So if um people read the book, um, listen to this podcast, the other media that you and Jeff Cohen have done uh since the book came out, if anything shakes loose from anybody out there who's a contemporary of anybody in the park or the families involved, um, how can they um share that information with you or who should they share it with? Well, what they what they should do is they should definitely contact the Chicago Field um FBI office. Um, as soon as what, what happens is if you I know it sounds like Chicago is so big, the FBI is so big, but if somebody has information and they contact the Chicago, uh, the FBI Chicago field field office, and then you give that story, that would get directed to the FBI. It's called CE6, Cr- Criminal Enterprise 6, who's handling the investigation right now. Or if they were to call the um, Chicago Police Department, mention the John Hughes um, murder back in 1976, they have a great cold case unit in Chicago. It would, it would go to them. And believe me, right now, every detective in Chicago they're very aware of the John Hughes murder in 1976. Mm-hmm. So they would know who to contact. So I would do that. I would call the Chicago FBI field office, or I would just call Chicago Police Department, their main main the main headquarters, and ask for a cold case investigator. Okay. And I'll put links to those in the episode notes as well. Yeah. Um so one last thing, Jim, that I, I want to ask about because in the book, there was um one or two chapters that really kind of laid bare all the corruption in the Chicago police department, the judicial system, the politicians, but particularly with police and judges. And, you know, I thought it went into a whole lot of detail. There was stuff in there that wasn't relevant to the John Hughes case, I guess, except to kind of put context around the level of corruption that was happening with the police and the judicial system at the time. So, and that's maybe because I live there that it, it, you know, it's like, I, well, I've heard all of this before, but, um, as someone who's dedicated their whole life to law enforcement, how did that part of the book strike you? Yeah, I was kind of, I, I, I don't want to say shocked drew by reading that, but I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to read that part, but Jeff made a great point. That's the reason why you hit the nail on the head. The reason why he put that in the book is to show people that are not uh, familiar with Chicago, right? Excuse me, and how it works. You are, I am. So that to me, that was just, you know, that was just icing on the cake. Like, why get into that? But I guess for people outside Chicago that that don't understand, how can something like this happen? Well, he gave several examples of what have happened in the past. So I think that that's why he put it in there strictly for context, right? Okay. Any other thoughts or comments about it before we wrap up here? Yeah, you know. It, it, today's day with this, you know, beating up on the police so much. In 1976, 99% of the coppers that worked on this case, you know, were doing the right thing. They right. really were. And I think the corruption part of this, even ahead of the police and the judicial system, which you so eloquently said, because you're you're right, the, the corruption, in my opinion, in Chicago comes from the, the, the politics. Right. Um, Habercorn, he couldn't have done what he did without having the backing of politicians. I mean, you, you just can't. So when, when you read about police pol- police corruption, it's usually not the guy that, you know, the guy that's walking the beat or the detective. 
It's some boss who may have got that rank because of who he knows. He got there and now he's used by a, by a politician. And I can't speak for other big cities, but I know in Chicago that coppers, you know, 99% of them are, are good, hardworking mm-hmm. police officers trying to do the right thing. But it only takes one. Right. You know, in, this, in this situation with Abercorn, just so happened to be the commander. I mean, what he said was gold back then. You know, and plus, back then, there's no computers. So when these coppers right, are doing right. reports, when they were doing reports, they're literally doing a report. They're typing it out, and they're putting it into a bin. That bin sits there. Then a supervisor approves it, and it goes to another bin. There's so many opportunities for those reports to be, be you know, stolen sure. and ripped up, and no one knows it even happened. You know, today, when a copper writes, you know, does a report, as soon as he does it, hits, hits send, it's memorialized. So it's so different than it's so easy back then. If right. they want to cover up something, it was so easy back then. Okay. Well, Jim, I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to talk about the book. The book, again, is Murder in Canaryville, the true story behind a cold case and a Chicago cover up. Um, I've got a link in the episode notes to the book uh, as well. And Jim, I again, thank you. And especially thank you for all of your years of service and the work you've been doing for the people that, you know, you signed up to protect and serve. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, Drew. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. I'm Drew Zagorski. This is You Don't Say. Peace. Thanks for listening. If you have a story to tell, shoot me an email to info at youdontsay.net. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at YDS Stories. Thanks again, and see you on the next episode.